Welcome to this special season of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs in Victoria. I'm your host, Thenu Herath, and together we'll discover the exceptional work of prominent women in international affairs. Before we begin today's episode, you may be wondering, why have we chosen to create an entire season dedicated to this topic? It's a good question and one that can be answered by a recent study completed by the Lowy Institute. The three-year study, reported in July of 2019, reveals severe gender imbalances in Australia's international relations sector. The data shows that there are fewer women in senior diplomatic and intelligence roles, as well as policy-shaping activities, compared to many other democratic countries and the corporate sector and public sector in Australia. As we will see throughout the season, this is not due to a lack of talent within the gender. Prominent trailblazers have proved otherwise. The Lowy Institute found that this imbalance needs to be addressed for the sector to make its workforce more effective and innovative. Rather than focusing on gendered experiences, as many previous discussions on the topic have done, This podcast season will focus on the actual game-changing contributions women are already making to Australia's international relations sector. The recommendations of the study were simple. We need to create an industry that is open to seeking out the best available talent. Only then can we most effectively navigate Australia's place in an increasingly complex world. So as the Dyson House podcast's first female host... It is with great pleasure that I introduced our first guest, Professor Gillian Triggs. Leaving behind a very successful career as an international lawyer and academic, the former president of the Human Rights Commission left Australia last year to take up the position of Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at the UNHCR in Geneva. With Gillian's direct insight into the UN Refugee Agency, we hope to shed some light on the interplay between current refugee crises and the also-current COVID-19 global pandemic. Gillian, thanks for joining me today. It's a very great pleasure to be with you. To begin, I'd be very interested in hearing how you have found your new role so far. Has it been everything you expected it to be? I've enjoyed the experience enormously, but I have to say it is very different from anything that I had imagined. Um, I... I've been, of course, a lawyer for more than 50 years. And in every job, one way or the other, I have been able to, you know, you get a, you get a task, a legal task, and you can, you can go to your office and you can, you can work away at it. You can produce some advice, check the law, um, and, uh, and you can sort of produce something. Whereas <clears throat> from sort of eight o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night, I'm actually in meetings, reviewing things other people have done, giving advice, making, you know, talking to people, um, organizing things, but I'm not actually doing anything. So when I get to the end of the day, I think, what have I achieved? I haven't got a single document. I have, you know, it's, so it's a very, it's much more diplomatic, um, much more management, um, than, than the sort of classical legal, kind of work that I've done for most of my life. I think that's a very important point you bring up about perhaps diplomacy not being as quick to solve problems as we would like. 
Have there been particular circumstances within the last few months that have really highlighted this for you? <laughs> well, listen, I can't tell you about it in detail um, or, or identify the countries, but there was um, a particular issue uh, between two countries and I was asked to lead a delegation to try to um, resolve an aspect of it. And um, that's taking a lot longer than I had imagined. And you think you have agreement on something and find that, in fact, you haven't. Uh, or that people go away and rethink something when you thought you'd got, you were coming close to agreement. And I, I find also, and, well, it, it makes the point that it, it's very much like a Department of Foreign Affairs job, that you're actually um, trying to understand the perspective of the other side or of another state, in our case, another state, and you're trying to find a way to reach the outcome you want, which in the case of UNHCR is um, aid and uh, support for refugees and, and uh, internally displaced people and stateless people and so on. So uh, you have to really get inside the mind of the other side. And that can be very complex because every state is, is unique in its own way and has its own needs and its own perceptions. And so you've just got to be very, very open-minded and flexible about what you're trying to achieve in an environment in which no one will really ever deny to your face the, the need to respect the rights of uh, displaced people or asylum seekers. That's not usually a risk. And indeed, it gets to the point we were discussing earlier, actually, that um, the law in this area is not difficult. You don't need a PhD in refugee law to understand that you cannot return people to a place of persecution and danger. So those aren't on the surface at risk, but in reality they're profoundly at risk, and you have to find ways of um, working with people who will agree with everything you say except with the final outcome, <laughs> and that's, that's a bit of a challenge. I can imagine. I'm sure a pandemic hasn't really helped increase that efficiency either. I mean, with the world effectively in lockdown, it seems that one of the main concerns of world leaders during this coronavirus crisis is to stop migrations and movements of people. How can we continue to protect human rights and international refugee law during this time? Well, that is the challenge. Uh, and, it's, and it's a very serious one in the sense that Going to what I was just describing, one has to understand the concerns of states and governments, because quite obviously they have a responsibility, a duty to protect the public health with their boundaries. And that means they are entitled to close their boundaries and to impose very stringent um, restrictions on the ability of people to enter their country. Now, that right is not an absolute right in a sense that it does need to be balanced with the long-standing right of a person to claim asylum. Now, what what the minister might say, well, but, but what if that person is carrying disease or a virus? And that's a perfectly reasonable concern. So the kind of thinking that we're asking governments to consider is allow those who are seeking protection 
on quite proper legal grounds on the Refugee Convention. Allow them to do so, but use necessary and proportionate um, regulations of quarantine, checking, of course, identity, checking their, their papers, uh, but, uh, uh, isolating them, uh, adopting appropriate processes, but not to take a black and white approach that everything will be closed down and nobody will be entitled to uh, claim asylum or to have access to the asylum, the asylum processes that the country would normally have in place. So that's the kind of argument. It's a more nuanced position. But it, what we're saying is it's not a binary issue, one or the other. You can do both. You can, you can be humane. You can act responsibly under international law, protect frontiers, you can protect national um, public health, but you can do so in a way that respects asylum-seeking rights. So to help with that, the UNHCR is, I hear, seeking $255 million US dollars to respond to the COVID-19 outbreak. In your opinion, which areas around the world are currently in the most need? Well, that's a very important question because we do have to establish priorities. Um, there are very, there are very obvious areas, and perhaps I should preface my answer by saying what is curious at the moment, and if you look at um, some of the, the maps that are being generated, uh, the worst instances of coronavirus cases and deaths are in the global north, in wealthier countries, with, with very good health systems. And the areas that we see at greatest, greatest risk, risk with refugees and inter, internally displaced people do not yet have much, uh, in many cases, cited, although they're, of course, they're there. Um, what we're mainly concerned about is the risk for those populations because they're especially vulnerable. Um, if, if, for example, the healthcare systems of wealthy countries are having trouble coping with the coronavirus. Just imagine what it would be like in developing countries with much weaker health systems. Um, but also, of course, it's in vulnerable, poorer countries where overwhelmingly the majority of refugees and internally displaced people are. Um, uh, just to, to give you some broad numbers, something in the order of, of 72 million people are either displaced in their country or are, are refugees. Now, let's answer your question more precisely. The areas that we are especially concerned about are where there are camps or, or dense urban development environments in which displaced people and refugees are held. And they are uh, most obviously um, the in Cox's Bazaar area of Bangladesh, where uh, Rohingya refugees are being held. Um, um, a Western um, European example is, of course, the Greek islands camps where 10 times the number of people are being held than was ever um, planned for in conditions that are absolutely appalling, uh, really disgraceful conditions, but where if the virus takes hold, will cause untold uh, deaths and disaster. So they're two obvious examples, but beyond that, of course, we're concerned about the whole of the Sahel area, uh, Burkina Faso, Mali, uh, the Dominican, um, the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, Somalia, uh, Kenya, uh, all of those African countries. But also, of course, concerned about the huge numbers in Colombia, 
um, where uh, refugees, um, uh, displaced people have been emerging from um, from Venezuela. Um, so they're just a few. There are others that are, of course, enormous concern. Uh, the Idlib area where a million people are displaced within Syria. Um, difficult environment to get uh, health aid into, although, of course, great efforts are being made to get medical supplies and food and shelter and uh, hygiene materials and water. Uh, efforts are you know, being made by, across the humanitarian environment to get those that aid in. But we have then pockets of the world where the risks are much greater than in others. We've talked a lot about how developed countries have the ability to assist developing countries during times of crisis. Many would argue that the UNHCR Global Refugee Forum has been pretty successful in re-energizing international interest in strengthening refugee protection. In your experience, however, what are the main challenges the UNHCR face in actually ensuring individual developed countries make this a reality? Uh, well, perhaps I could just mention the importance of the uh, Global Compact on Refugees, which was signed uh, some three or four years ago. It was a major initiative of the United Nations, um, uh, stimulated by a New York declaration under the Obama administration in the United States that picked up a key idea, um, and that is that the whole world, globally, every country, including the business community, civil society, academia, faith-based groups, all of us, in other words, have a shared responsibility uh, for uh, refugees uh, and for internally displaced people. It's a shared burden and responsibility. And that was proven to be an exciting idea because most countries in the world signed on to that agreement. Uh, It's not a legal document but it's a powerful document with a vision and with um, an acceptance of responsibility globally, recognising that, for the most part, wealth exists in some countries, largely the global global north, but the problems for um, internally displaced people and refugees is largely uh, in the south. Now, that, given the examples I've just given you, that's not exclusively so. I've mentioned Greece, I've mentioned Syria, and so on. Um, so we have the... In place, we have the conceptual agreement, if you like, to the fundamental principles of solidarity and burden sharing. Nobody could have predicted that we would see evidence of the need for this so quickly as we have done with the COVID-19. In other words, as I think um, the Secretary General has pointed out, we are globally, we are only as strong in the health environment as the weakest healthcare system. Mm. And it's a powerful point to make because if we have a weak healthcare system in Mali and Burkina Faso, uh, you know, in uh, in Somalia, uh, in Bangladesh, in Myanmar, then we have a risk to everybody. And so that need for global sharing is is understood now in in a way that perhaps even with the success of the compact, uh, it was not really understood in quite the same way. So I think that that's been um, a shining light. Now, I haven't really quite come to your question as how do we persuade the states to really live up to that burden and responsibility. And I'd have to say that the, um, that, that globally states and those states with, with resources have been, um, generous. 
They have been coming to the party with significant sums. Um, uh, perhaps I mentioned some, but the United States, um, a general in this area, Germany, uh, many European countries. Um, many, uh, we've had extraordinary uh, contributions from, uh, from the Middle East, from wealthy uh, government leaders and wealthy family members. We've had contributions to the business community, um, uh, IKEA, Vodafone. Um, uh, we've had the World Bank coming in with massive uh, capacities to provide uh, grants and no interest loans to governments. So I, I think I'd have to say that the idea of, of, of global responsibility sharing has been strong. Uh, and I think, and I certainly hope, you mentioned the appeal that's just been announced uh, by the by the Secretary General for for funds and um, the UNH asked for 255.2 million is a relatively smaller part of the whole, but nevertheless, I uh, expect that that will basically be met. Um, so on the funding side, I think we have very we have reason to be optimistic, and I think that's exciting. That is very exciting. I've actually been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of weeks, and the way that I can rationalize it, it seems that the world can go one of two ways. Either we turn to more nationalistic sentiments that are starting to come out in some countries, or we do actually pivot to a more globalized world where we realize how interconnected we are. What are your thoughts on this? Well, that, again, is a, a question that's exercising our at the moment here at uh, UNHCR in Geneva. And although I've given you a relatively upbeat and um, optimistic view on the funding side, I haven't yet got to what I think are profound threats. And that is um, we now know uh, through our own uh, research and, and uh, data collection that 131 countries have closed their borders. Um, we think that most of them are uh, doing so in a way that denies access to asylum seekers um, and uh, are shutting down asylum processes. Now, uh, we believe it will be temporary, and, and most countries say it's temporary. But our concern is exactly the one you've expressed, that when you have an emergency of this kind, it tends to bring out an element of nationalism, xenophobia, um, discrimination, um, and, and populist policies, anti-immigration, which has been around, been around for a while, but that this makes it worse. It feeds into people's prejudices and fears. I, I have to, one has to be honest in saying we're also talking about, uh, fears. And, and a time of fear is exactly when a populist politician will, will, uh, will exacerbate and, and move and develop, um, build on those fears in order to achieve a political outcome. So there's an opportunism. At a more lofty level, I think the, the concern we've got is that democracy is always fragile. Uh, and it's increasingly fragile when you have threats of this kind. And we are seeing threats to democracy and to human rights and to civil rights uh, on an unprecedented scale brought in as a consequence of the coronavirus. Now, some of those measures may be seen as necessary and proportionate, but I, I fear that many are not. 
But worse than that, I fear that they will be, in a sense, baked in. They will they will be permanent instead of when this is over and it will be over. Um, it will find that many states won't go back to normal. They will say there are advantages to the closed, limited um, practices. I've been listening to people raising fears about the use of um, of uh, biomed med details uh, for surveillance. Uh, it's always been a risk over the last few years, a growing risk. But now I think um, it's being used, of course, to work out who uh, the metadata, for example, is being used to trace uh, the very people one's had contact with. If you if you have um, the coronavirus. Um, that may be a reasonable and proportional measure today, but whether it will be reasonable to use that technology in the way that it is at the moment in the future is something, of course, that we, we're deeply concerned. Uh, also concerned about the idea of closing borders, but also some of the getting back to refugee rights. Deeply concerned that a number of countries are not abiding by their responsibilities to asylum seekers, and they are actually knowingly returning people to place of persecution, discrimination, conflict and danger. So that is that is a shocking fact because that is one of the most um, uh, accepted international behaviour uh, that we've had since, uh, since uh, the, the, the Second World War, or since uh, the date of the Refugee Convention in 1951. Mm. That's great food for thought, Gillian. And I'm sure it's something that everyone will continue to discuss as not only the global refugee crisis, but also the pandemic continues to occur throughout the world. I want to change track a little bit now and ask you about a recent address that you delivered to the UN Human Rights Council. You identified gender inequality as one of the root causes of forced displacement. What exactly is the connection between gender inequality and forced displacement? Well, that is truly important question. I'm, you know, as as a feminist at university in the sixties, um, I've always been very alert to uh, gender inequality. Um, but I don't think I realised until I took this position just how profound the consequences of gender inequality are uh, for women in in a, 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 an environment such as the COVID-19 or conflict. Um, something in the order of 75, 80% of those displaced or seeking protection as asylum seekers are women and children. It's quite extraordinary. Um, the, the, the women are uh, vulnerable and a vulnerable position of moving away. They have no hope. They're moving, they're living in shelters and tents, they're on roads, trying to look after their children. They are uh, highly vulnerable to sex violence abuse and in some cases trafficking of young girls and young boys. Um, the, 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 the depravity really of the human condition is very um, obvious. Uh, when you look at the situation of people who've been bombed out of their homes and moving to places of safety. Um, so when we think about it, when we see this manifestation in the context of conflict and war in, in Syria, we see it in Burkina Faso, Mali, other parts of the world, 
uh, we realize we have evidence right in front of our eyes that it's women who bear the burden overwhelmingly. And I've recently seen figures that also um, in the COVID-19 crisis, the health workers who are contracting the disease and dying are again overwhelmingly women because women are doing that work mm-hmm. and they've always done it. So I think if, if we ever needed um, evidence as to why we have to work so much harder on achieving genuine global uh, and gender equality, uh, we, we have it in, in today's uh, coronavirus crisis and in the displacement of so many millions of people um, uh, as a consequence of conflict. poverty, climate change. All of these issues lead into it. But inequality uh, for women uh, is is a fundamental consequence of uh, of those dangers, and uh, the Secretary General of the UN has spoken time and time again of the need for us to work harder to achieve that that gender equality. I'm sure a lot of our listeners actually want to go into international relations to change all this to make the world a more secure place for humans everywhere and to decrease gender inequality. Do you have any final words of advice for anyone wanting to do this? <laughs> well, I have, I have lots of, <laughs> lots of gratuitous That's advice. Question. <laughs> I think uh, uh, to young people, I think it's wonderful when you're young, you have a vision of the world you want to see I I love that vision and I love the energy uh, that goes behind it. I think today's younger generation has that vision for equality, uh, perhaps in ways that no other generation has had. So with that um, wonderful background, with that, with that foundation, my advice to young people is to study hard, work hard, in other words, to get the tools that can help solve the problems. Um, being idealistic, having a vision, won't always get you there. You have to have the tools to get there. Um, and, and can I just give a very small example? Many, many years ago in a, in a job I had in London, we worked with Oxfam on um, uh, trying to get a land uh, grant to an indigenous community in the Amazonian rainforest. And in order to do that, you had to have bankers and lawyers and human rights experts. Um, I always remember very well the some of the Oxfam people were just wonderful in terms of what they were trying to achieve for an indigenous group, give them land that would give them a place to be secure and to retain their culture and language. But the human rights people, even the human rights lawyers, weren't that good at doing what was necessary legally in terms of a debt for equity swap, which is a complicated legal, it's not that complicated, but it's a, it's a legal device. And you had to work with the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, you had to work with German technology people, you had to do all sorts of things. In order to make that work, you needed really good skills. And we went to some of the top banking finance lawyers in London at that time who gave their legal assistance a free pro bono in order to help the deal work. So I mentioned that example. I've, I've talked about it before. It had a big impact for me. That you can have the vision and you can have the heart in the right place. You can have, um, you can have all the ethical um, uh, and humanistic 
objectives, but you have to have the tools to, to solve the problems that we're talking about. And so you need the World Bank on side. You need the, the, the technical lawyers. You need the, the engineers and the, and the IT people. So to young people, I'd say bring the vision and energy, but, but, but build your technical skills, whatever they might be, in order to solve these problems. Because you, the UN, although it's a relatively modern phenomenon, I mean, from the, from the, you know, obviously 45, the, the vision is there. The, the principles are there and the law is there, but the means of achieving it are not yet. And I think that's what I'd like to see young people say, right, this is the problem. Let's use all those skills, all that education that we're getting, um, unprecedented levels of education. Yet let's use that to help solve these problems. Gender inequality, um, lack of access to health care, to, to the causes that lead to uh, intercommunal conflict, help to deal with the problem of global uh, climate change and desertification, lost resources and so on. Those are, uh, those are problems we can solve. We know we can do it, but we have to have people with a vision to do it. So there, I'm sorry, very long answer. But a great answer. Thank you again for joining me, Gillian. It's been a pleasure. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your very well-researched questions. <laughs>